Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. John Legend's one of those people who can brighten a day. So we're lucky during these times to be getting some new music. Rick wanted to talk to an uplifting artist for the podcast, and John was one of the first people that came to mind. And the timing was perfect because John just released Actions, a song off his new album that's due later this year. Rick and John are both sheltered in place at the moment while we ride this virus out. You probably saw John's living room concert with his wife Chrissy Teigen this past week, so we connected with John via Zoom. It's the first time we've really done a remote recording like this for the podcast, but it was a nice trial run since we'll likely be doing a lot more of this in the future. And since it's our first go at it, you'll probably hear some kids crying in the background, and this episode's definitely a lot shorter than usual. But when John's album comes out later this year, we'll definitely try to get him back on. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation between Rick and John Legend. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and John Legend. What's happening, Rick? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you. My pleasure. Are you in Malibu? We're probably really close to each other. I, I'm in Hawaii, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're very far from each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. We've been doing these podcasts now for, I don't know, about a year and a half, and I've never done one this way. They've always been in person. Okay. Well... This is going to be a new, ex- new experience for both of us. This is the wave of the present. <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully not the future. So um, do you remember your first memories of music as a kid? Yeah, my first memories of music as a kid uh, were in church. I grew up 
in the Pentecostal church in Springfield, Ohio. My grandfather was the pastor of our church. My grandmother was the church organist and my mother directed the choir. And my dad sang in the choir and played the drums. And um, so I would go to choir rehearsal with my parents and hang out with them and with my grandmother. And uh, I would be at church every Sunday and sometimes during the week. And uh, we were surrounded by gospel music all the time. My parents played it on their record player at home and uh, eventually their cassette player. And, uh, and you know, we, we were uh, immersed in it. And that was the primary source of music for us. Would you say the church came first and the music followed, or was it primarily a musical church? I would say they were so integrated that uh, you couldn't separate one from the other. Uh, when you went to our churches, uh, any of the Pentecostal churches that I attended or that I uh, or the one I grew up in, um, music was so integral to the service um, that you couldn't imagine the service without music. Yeah. When's the first time you remember playing in front of people? I I think probably the first time I sang in front of anyone was probably a, like a Christmas program at, at school. They would trot out the little kids to say their little pieces and sing a, a little song. And I was probably five, maybe four or five, um, probably not too far from the age my daughter is now. She's almost four. Um, but I was probably a little bit older than that, but not much older. And, uh, you know, you don't know what you're doing at that time, but uh, it's part of how you celebrate Christmas. It's part of how you interact with each other at church. And then um, I remember one of the first real productions I was in was a Christmas play um, at my elementary school. I, um, for part of my elementary school years, attended a Christian school called Springfield Christian School. Uh, and some of the time I was homeschooled as well. But uh, for the time that I was there, I was a participant in some of the um, like Christmas musicals and other, you know, little productions that the elementary school would do. And then uh, was there a was there a moment in time where you decided to make it a profession or did it happen organically? Well, it it started happening early. So, um, you know, I would watch uh, Star Search and I would watch the Grammys and I would watch Solid Gold and Soul Train. And I would see um, artists who um, were seemingly enjoying themselves doing what they love to do and performing in front of large audiences. And I wanted to be one of those artists. I loved singing at church, but I wanted to be one of the artists I saw on television. I would see Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Luther, you know, Certain artists uh, caught my attention. Aretha Franklin caught my attention and made me want to be in the stages, on the stages where, the, where they were performing. And um, so I dreamt of being here very early in my life. Um, I didn't know what that meant. You know, to me, that meant winning Star Search. <laughs> um, <laughs> funny that I'm... Uh, on the voice now, but, but, you know, to me at the time, it meant winning a television talent show and getting discovered that way. So after church, the next 
your next connection to music was more through television, you would say? Yeah, television, the radio. Um, but, you know, when I when I would see those artists on television, it would kind of uh, put kind of meat and bones on this idea of what it meant to be a professional artist. Uh, it would, you know, it it gave me a visual representation of what that meant and not just singing it for free at church or or, or singing it locally at school, but doing it for a living and, and doing it on big stages. Television was what kind of introduced me to what that meant. Do you, do you remember when or if, when you noticed that the... the the difference between the, the music that was particular to the church and, the, and non-church music? Oh, yeah. My parents made it clear that uh, secular music actually wasn't really welcomed in our home. So we didn't have like almost any secular recordings in our home at the time, even though we'd see some things on television. Uh, we... Um, when we were young, my parents were very strict about those kinds of things. So we didn't have any secular music recordings at home. Um, when I got a little older, things got a little more relaxed. And uh, my parents went through, were going through a divorce. And so they got a little more relaxed, too. Uh, and so a lot of the kind of strict, um, really fundamentalist traditions that they were cleaving to for a long time, uh, they kind of relaxed them a bit by the time we were... 10, 11, 12 years old. And and then you start to realize, oh, my dad loved Motown. He loved the OJs. He loved, uh, um, my mom loved Luther Vandross. These are artists that they loved, but they didn't really like let on that they loved it because it was um, in our church tradition kind of um, frowned upon to uh, listen to secular music. Is piano your first instrument? My first and only. I faked playing guitar on La La Land. I, I learned enough to fake it. And uh, that was it. <laughs> Other than that, uh, piano is all I have. And when did your relationship with piano begin? Well, it started very young. We had a piano in my house. Um, and like I said, my grandmother was the church organist. And so she would show me things uh, on both the organ and piano, m mostly piano. Uh, she had a piano and organ at her house, too. And... Um, you know, I was there was not many homes that I would go to that didn't have a piano um, in my mm -hmm. life. So my neighbor next door had a piano. My grandmother, uh, my grandmothers on both sides had pianos um, and we had a piano. Uh, it was a beat up upright piano. Do you remember um, your first experiments with songwriting? Well, I started taking piano lessons formally at a music store when I was about uh, four or five years old. And um, I learned like classical and uh, hymns and things like that. Um, and then um, I think I probably started writing around eight or nine years old. I would write things that I could sing at church. I would, by the time I was 10 or 11, I was... Uh, you know, into girls more. By that point, I started writing songs that I could sing to girls that I liked. <laughs> and uh, so between singing to Jesus and singing to girls, that th those are my uh, my prompts for writing. It was always from a place of passion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
do you remember the first music that really spoke to you um, outside of church music that where you feel like um, was foundational for you that you would say was your music? I I loved well. There was music that my parents played that I loved. Um, um, so um, at a certain point, once they once they kind of relaxed the the uh, the restrictions on secular music, you know, my mom would play. She would play like kind of modern R and B, like Whitney and Luther and Anita Baker. And my dad was more into, like I said, Motown and the OJ's and stuff like that. And so my upbringing as a younger child was a combination of gospel music and current R&B and then classic, you know, soul. And then once I started developing a consciousness of my own and and actively buying my own records, um, I was really into New Jack Swing. Um, So, you know, um, I was in middle school around the time like Belle Biv DeVoe was out. I was in high school when Boyz II Men was big and Jodeci and R. Kelly and uh, a lot of those artists that were kind of fusing hip hop and R&B in what were at the time interesting new ways. Uh, Mary J came out uh, when I was in high school. Um, And I loved some of the Motown stuff like Stevie and Marvin, um, but the stuff that we talked about at school that me and my friends were into and excited about in high school was the new stuff that was out. And a lot of that for us was that new Jack swing sound. Mm-hmm. What, what was going on in hip hop at that time? In hip hop, I wasn't that into hip hop um, until I went to college. Um, I didn't really get into hip hop in the early nineties. I started to get into it much more in the um, mid to late nineties. But, you know, I think Biggie came out in, like, the early 90s. Snoop came out. Um, you know, a lot of the, like, the NWA-type artists, uh, Public Enemy. These are things my friends were listening to. But I, I wasn't that into hip-hop until I got a little bit older. Uh, where did you go to school? I went to um, college at UPenn in Philadelphia. And so I get to Philly, and this was a formative time in my life, too, I get to Philly right when uh, the Roots are really kind of running the scene there musically, but they're also working with, uh, you know, artists like D'Angelo, Common, Erica Badu. All these artists are not from Philly, but they would come to Philly to work uh, with the Roots and, and James Poyser and, and these other cats that were um, uh, producing and recording there. Um, Jill Scott was coming from Philly, Jaguar, Bilal, Music Soul Child. All this stuff was happening while I was in college. And so in college, I was playing at a church um, uh, every Sunday to help pay my bills. And then uh, uh, during the week, you know, I was singing in an acapella group um, on campus, but I was also going to different open mics and things like that. They had a thing called Black Lily. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but um, this was like an open mic that the... um, that the Roots and uh, the Jazzy Fat Nasties would host. Um, and you'd see Jill Scott there. You'd see Bilal there. you see Jaguar there. you see all these different artists. Mm-hmm. They started um, doing it at Wilhelmina's, uh, and then they moved it to the five spot. Um, and you would see all of this music being made. Um, and it was amazing. And it was exciting to be a witness to it. I didn't 
have any Philly roots at the time. I was just going to school there. So I wasn't that connected to the local artist scene at that time. But I just started to go to these events and observe and be inspired by what they did. And then I think between that and meeting Lauren Hill in uh, 98 um, through uh, one of the um, singers that was singing in the choir at the church that I was playing for, uh, all of those things kind of served as inspirations for me to really pursue being a solo artist and writing my own music and, and really making uh, an earnest effort to to be seen and heard by record labels, management, and then eventually the world. Um, all that started to happen while I was in college, while I was in Philly, while I was seeing all these other incredible artists um, doing their thing. It made me want to do it. And so at that time, would you have been, when you started pursuing it in that way, did you make demos or did you go out and play? Yeah. Live? So I started making demos um, when I was, I, I graduated high school young. I was um, homeschooled some of my early years. And so I uh, graduated high school when I was 16. And um, so I got to Penn when I was 16 years old. I would lie about my age because <laughs> um, I just didn't want to be the weirdo who was two years younger than everybody else. So I would lie and say I was 17. <laughs> it made me a little younger, but, you know, it, it, was, it, it wasn't too big of a stretch. Anyway, I get there. I'm 16, and I'm figuring myself out what I want to do. I'm also, you know, going to class, doing a work-study job, all these things. But people started to hear me sing. I auditioned for this a cappella group, and people loved my voice there. And I started to get a little bit of a reputation around campus as one of the better singers on campus. And so guys that were uh, musicians or songwriters or producers would start to reach out to me and say, hey, you want to collaborate on some stuff together? I want to help you make a demo. I want to help you create some new songs. So one of the guys um, was a guy named Dave Tozer, who was not a student at Penn, but he was living in Philadelphia and was friends with some of my friends at school. And so we met then. He plays a guitar, bass, produces uh and, and write songs. And we've been writing songs together since then. Uh, we're, work, we're working on a project now. Uh, and we've been writing together since probably 1997, 1998. Um, there was another guy uh, who was graduated from Penn, but he happened to be in the same acapella group that I was in. And he was producing and arranging uh, for pop artists at the time. He was like arranging for Lisa Loeb and other artists that were... Um, popular at that time in the mid to late 90s. And uh, he had seen me at one of our shows and was like, oh, I really would love to work with you and write and produce with you. And then there was another guy you might might know. His name is Ted Chung. He mm -hmm. works with Snoop. Um, and he he's from out. He's from L.A. And uh, he manages Snoop now as part of uh, Snoop's business team. But at the time, he was just a student at Penn uh, and he was rapping and producing as well. And um, so all these different guys um, that I met at school that were working on music and producing and writing and, and were like, hey, let's collaborate on some stuff. And so I started to put together a demo during that time. Um, and um, the first demo I created was with, uh, with Dan Coleman. And then the second one I created was with Dave Tozer. Um, but I was also collaborating with other producers. And one of the uh, producers I met was Veda Nobles, who uh, was working with um, Lauren Hill at the time. Um, and he worked on The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. 
I play piano on Everything is Everything. Uh, when I met Lauren Hill through one of my friends um, that was at the church that I was um, directing music at. And uh, Lauren, the day I met her, asked me to play on the song that they were working on at that time, which was Everything is Everything. Also auditioned for her um, band uh, right after that um, to see if I could go and tour with her after the album came out. I didn't make the band, so I didn't drop out of school. But um, <laughs> I would have. <laughs> but then after that, I graduate school. I have a couple different demos that I've made, and I keep working on new uh, music, trying to get heard by different people, uh, record labels, managers, etc. And um, I take a career detour <laughs> and become a management consultant. Um, it's kind of like almost peer peer pressure because all my other friends were like applying to banks and uh, consulting firms and accounting firms. And and one of my uh, friends who was a year ahead of me at Penn, uh, she had graduated and she was working at this place called Boston Consulting Group. And I was like, what do you guys do? And she explained what they did. And, and you know, it seemed like a prestigious thing to do and, and like something that really smart people should try to do. And so I applied um, and got an interview and got the job. And they offered me like 50 grand a year the first year out of school, which was a gargantuan amount of money for me at the time. Uh, my dad never made that much money uh, in any year uh, as a factory worker. And they offered me this money and, and uh, this job at, at Boston Consulting Group in Boston. And um, I'm like, I'm going to take it, of course. So I take it. Um, I get frustrated living in Boston. And asked them to transfer me to, to New York so I could be closer to the music scene there. And I moved to New York. Um, I roomed with two guys. One of the guys was Kanye's cousin. Um, and Kanye's cousin, his name is Devon Harris. He went to Penn with me. And um, he was living in New York with another friend of mine. And um, they were living on 2nd Avenue between 7th and St. Mark's. And uh, they were working in different corporate jobs and and they were like, uh, do you want to come live with us when you move to town? And I was like, yeah. And so uh, Devon is working during the day at Price Waterhouse, another consulting firm. <laughs> and but at night he's like making beats and he's DJing a little bit. And then his cousin moves to town. His cousin, of course, is Kanye West. Kanye moves uh, to Newark from Chicago, um, and this is right around, um, I think, either 2000 or 2001. And uh, in 2001, uh, September 11th, the day, uh, the blueprint came out, uh, as you might recall. And uh, that's Jay-Z's, you know, really important album. And it was huge for Kanye's career and Just Blaze's career because they had a lot of the beats on, on that album. And Kanye kind of starts to blow up as a producer. Uh, he just moved to uh, Newark um, and was working in the hip hop scene in, in the tri-state area. Um, and um, his cousin, Devon, introduces the two of us and says, you guys should collaborate. And that's how I met Kanye. He came to my show at Jimmy's Uptown in Harlem. And um, I was, you know, gigging, doing, uh, you know, selling my demo out of my trunk of my car um, playing my music for record label executives and Kanye comes to the show and, um, he says, we should start working together. And we started working together. He was working on 
what eventually became the college dropout. I would sing on a lot of the demos. Um, and then I was working on what eventually became Get Lifted. And he made several of the beats that uh, embodied uh, the uh, that that were the, you know, the tracks for the songs on Get Lifted. And um, he eventually signed me to his production company, which became known as Good Music. And uh, I signed through him to Columbia Records eventually in 2004. But we had been working together for like two and a half years. And when his album, Dro College Dropout, came out, it was like a huge moment. Uh, you know, he sold like 400,000 copies the first week. Um, he was really becoming a, a real musical phenomenon that we know him as today. And um, and the labels were like, who's next from his camp? And I was next. And so multiple labels wanted to sign me finally after playing the same demo for them, you know, for the last couple of years. Uh, Kanye's success made everything that we had made before sound a lot better to everybody. And uh, so I got multiple offers and I, I took the offer at Columbia and I'm still at Columbia. We'll be right back with more from John Legend. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. 
Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with more from Rick and John Legend. Let's talk about um, ordinary people because it's, when you think of the popular music of the day, when it came out, that's not what it sounds like. It no. really it really stands apart from everything else going yeah. on. And I can remember Kanye playing for playing it for me then and yeah. I remember being surprised that that's what he was playing me. Yeah. Yeah. And the that has an interesting story as well. I was managed by David Sonnenberg um and David managed uh and Seth Friedman and they managed the Black Eyed Peas. And so very early into me signing with them, um, they loved the stuff I had done with Kanye, but they were like, do you want to work with our guy, Will I Am? He's really talented too. He's a great musician. And I feel like you guys will vibe well together. And we wrote um, a couple songs um, that ended up on my uh, album. One of them was She Don't Have to Know. That was the first song we ever wrote together. Then I wrote some hooks and, and other things for the Black Eyed Peas. And then uh, he loved writing with me and was like, um, can you come and do another session writing hooks for us? And um, he played a beat that was um, loosely based on um, on that la, 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 from uh, My Sharia Moore, Stevie Wonder's song. Just that one section of the song. Um, he made a beat that was kind of based on that. And... Um, um, I started singing We're Just Ordinary People uh, to this beat. And it was meant to be a Black Eyed Peas hook that they would rap to, uh, you know, on the verses. But the more I thought about the song, I was like, you know what, Will? I feel like this song isn't a Black Eyed Peas song. It's a John Legend song. And uh, I basically took it back, (laughs) took back the chorus and uh, started writing a song, you know, a full song for me to sing around that chorus and uh that's the story of ordinary people so i told will that you know if you let me take the course back i'll let you produce the final product and eventually um we all came to the understanding that the demo of me just singing it with vocal and piano was better than anything we could do to it to you know make it sound more relevant or current or whatever and so we just left it the way it was. It's a re- it's a remarkably bold choice. It was clearly the right choice, um, but very unusual. You know, it's so there are so many stories of the demos being better than the records. Yeah, and this was one where the demo got to be the the record, and it, it again yeah. happens rarely. Especially, Very rarely. and it, it, the reason it happens so rarely is because it rarely fits with what's going on. But yeah when you allow something to be the thing that it is in its yeah. own greatness, as opposed to its own, as opposed to uh, how it relates to other things, it can have a life of its own and it can have a life of its own that can transcend everything else that's going on. That sounds like everything else. So it, yeah, it can actually, exactly. actually be a bigger deal. And it, I think it had the power of stopping everyone in their tracks uh, when it came on the radio 
um, people would tell me that they remembered the first time they heard it. And I think the fact that it sounded so different than everything else made you stop and pay attention in a way that you wouldn't have done so otherwise. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about stylistically that particular song. What would you say the inspiration was musically? Like, where was your head at for that to sound like that? Well, clearly Stevie Wonder was there because we uh, we definitely based it off of uh, a part of My Sharia Moore. But when you look at the the top line, the, the vocal and the melody of the song, it's not really exactly a Stevie Wonder type melody. It was kind of based on some of my gospel influences, I think, uh, as much as anything. Um, I don't even think of the piano as Stevie related. Yeah, but if you look at the actual progression, it's very similar to the progression on that one part of uh, my Sharia Moore, the la, 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 that part. It's very similar to that. But um, I think I think I had some gospel influences on it and some Stevie and it just came out the way it came out. Now, if we skip forward to All of Me, which was uh-huh. another song that was you and a piano. Uh-huh. Um, how did, well, that how was, did it happen? That, that was more like a classic, just sitting down, writing on the piano session. Uh, I was writing with Toby Gad. Um, he has a house in uh, in the valley, and uh, you know, he has a lovely grand piano, and he just sits there and writes songs. And he's written songs with all kinds of artists, um, some really classic songs. Um, but um, we just sat there and kept writing until we felt good about it. Um, the one thing I will say, uh, my manager mentioned She's Always a Woman, the Billy Joel song, uh, to me, and was like, you should write a song like that for Chrissy. And um, she had said that to me probably within the week of me doing that session. And uh, we had tried a few ideas when we were writing, Toby and I. And I thought back to uh, my manager saying that and uh, decided, let's try to do that. And for some reason, All of Me Loves All of You was the course that came to mind and and then it just it happened it, it and most of my writing sessions don't take long they're usually just a, a few hours maybe three hours four hours including you know recording a demo of it um so it doesn't usually take me long to get somewhere with a song uh and i try to be prolific as far as just creating more and more and and uh and you know of course you'll discard more things than you actually use uh, but I feel like if I go to the well as many times as possible, then I'll come up with something great more often. And so that's what I do. Great. In in that three or four hours, um, how much of the song, I, I know you end up with a demo. Mm-hmm. Do you have all the words? Um, I usually have 90% of what the final product is going to be. That's amazing. Part of it is because I like to write with co-writers. And so I think when you write with someone else, um, between the two or three of you, you'll you'll get like pretty much everything you need for the lyric. Um, And um, it comes to me, it comes to me pretty quickly. And and especially when I'm working with someone else, because those fresh ideas and and fresh lens on who I am and what they expect from me. I, I think it's cool to have different perspectives in the room. And I think it helps us write pretty quickly. Beautiful. There's also a um, there's a certain benefit to taking advantage of the moment when the song first arrives. Yeah. There's like an energy that's very hard to recreate. 
Absolutely. And I'll occasionally go back and say, ah, uh, this lyric isn't as effective as I would like it to be. Let me change it to something else. And I'll occasionally do that. But almost all of my songs are pretty close um, to being finished as compositions uh, in the first session. Beautiful. Have you ever considered doing a whole album of just you and a piano? Yes. I I've done a live album like that. Uh, this was way back. Uh, we called it Live at the Tin Angel. Uh, no, Live at the Knitting Factory, sorry. Uh, we did one Live at the Tin Angel too, but, but that was acoustic guitar. Um, and But I did Live at the Knitting Factory. It was just me on the piano the whole time. Uh, this is right before Get Lifted. Uh, I think 03. Get Lifted came out in 04. But I haven't done one since. Um, but I would definitely consider doing that. Yeah, it feels like we like hearing you that way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> cool. Um, can you think of um, any difficulties that you've had to overcome to get to where you are now? Oh, I feel like there's always difficulties. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, you start with uh, just trying to be seen and heard and make the right connections with the right people that will help you amplify your voice to the rest of the world. So part of that is just, you know, in the traditional music business, it was trying to get a record deal, which isn't is more optional now than it used to be. Um, but um, back in '04, on '02, '03, it felt very mandatory. <laughs> um, and so, you know, part of what the difficulties were were just being taken seriously and 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 having your value seen by gatekeepers that um, that decide who gets heard. Uh, by the masses but even now you're still every time you put a new song out every time you put an album out uh there are still gatekeepers there are uh streaming services radio uh programmers the fans themselves um everybody's still evaluating you uh what have you done for me lately uh, one song at a time or one album at a time and just because you've been successful before doesn't mean they're going to embrace whatever you do next and so I feel like it's always going to be difficult. And, 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 and in some ways, you could argue that it gets harder once you hit a certain age in this business uh, that values youth and newness. Um, yeah. You know, if the same if if an artist uh, 15 years younger than me put out the same music, would it be accepted more because they're fresh and new? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but all I can do is make music that I'm excited about that I hope I can get other folks excited about. Absolutely. So we talked about um, the church informing your music. Did, would you say that the church informed you in other ways beyond music? You know, I think um, my parents took their um, faith very seriously and they... They weren't hypocritical, you know, because I, I, there's a common strain of kind of holier than thou uh, fundamentalist Christians who are not only, you know, devout in the sense of they go to church a lot, but they use it almost as a weapon uh, uh, to judge other people and to condemn other people. But I always got the sense that my parents um, weren't like that. They weren't hypocritical about it. Um, and they actually took um, Christianity to heart in the sense of they wanted to be good people. They wanted to help their neighbors. They wanted to help the poor. They wanted to um, just live 
kind of have a healthy moral life where they um, did things that would hold up in their conscience and uh, and uh, and things that they could be proud of and try to set a good example for us. And so I think they, even though I'm not religious now and 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 uh, don't attend church or any religious services, I do feel like the lessons that they try to impart on us about character and what it means to be a good human being, um, that for them were informed by their faith. But, you know, they could be informed by all kinds of things. Uh, but for them, it was informed by their faith. And I think those messages did stick with me. And um, I think they've helped me think about how I'm supposed to uh, move in the world. Uh, it, it's helped me think about what character means, what it means to be a good human being. Beautiful. It's, it sounds like you're, you're, uh, it sounds like you're lucky in that regard. Yeah. And, 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 and like I said, I don't believe that church or, you know, uh, or mosque or synagogue is the only way that you can learn these things or, or think about these things. But when there is a group of people that have committed themselves to trying to be good human beings and they talk about what that means and hold each other accountable, I think it is a healthy thing if it doesn't go too far. How would you say your relationship to music has changed since the early days of going to church to now? Oh, that's a good question. Music still gives me so much joy. Um, I love writing music. I don't feel like I've gotten jaded um, in this business. I love writing music. I love the feeling when it comes together. Sometimes it doesn't come together all the way in the songwriting session, but when when the production, the arrangement comes together, the, you know, the right groove, the right guitar part, the right string arrangement, when the record really comes together and you just feel like you want to be immersed in it, it's so joyful. It's so um, exciting. It's so uh, moving for me. And then when I hear other artists do that in a way that uh, moves me, it, it just uh, uh, renews my faith in music. And it, my faith in music just keeps being renewed. Uh, and um, it's a really, I feel so fortunate to, to have this be the thing that I do most of my life. Uh, it's pretty amazing. When we come back, John shares with us the song he's currently obsessed with. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards, a hotel upgrade, lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with John Legend. Beautiful. Do you remember the last thing that um, really moved you musically? Oh, let's think. Well, there's a song um, called Outcome 2 by James Blake. I play that song a lot for some reason. Something about that song, I one of my influences that I didn't talk about was Nat King Cole, and I like kind of that kind of uh, classic uh, um, kind of Gershwin-y, mm-hmm. uh, Cole Porter, those kinds of uh, song songwriters from back in the day. And I loved Nat King Cole's voice. And I, I was talking to James about that um, with Outcome 2 was it reminded me of some of those old songs and something about the way he sings it, the production, everything about it. I just want to hear it over and over again. I so hear, that's, I'm going to play it right now. I really want to hear yeah. it. So let's see. Outcome 2 by James Blake. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's so such a well written song. I love how the melody swoops like I'll go on down your way. That's not right. And the strings and I love how romantic it is and uh unironic it is. It's just like, you know, it's like it's about diving in, you know. And uh It really does remind me of one of those old like nineteen twenties yeah. kind of uh almost like an old show tune. Yeah, exactly. And um it's it's so lovely. Really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. And um, 
I have lots of new music that's coming soon, so hopefully everybody will check all that out when it comes. But uh, great, I've been in the studio a lot the last 18 months whenever I've had the free time. And uh, we've made some things I'm really excited for people to hear. Big thanks to John Legend for taking the time out to video conference with us. His new song, Actions, is out now with a full album to come later this year. You can stream some of our favorite John Legend songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.